0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The massive Chinese real estate company Evergrande is unable to pay its debts. This has sparked some rare protests in China and is spooking international financial markets. A key question now is whether or not the government of China will let Evergrande collapse, and whether or not the collapse of this real estate giant will have knock-on effects throughout the region and the world. My guest today, Richard Vague, is the Secretary of Banking and Securities for Pennsylvania and an author who has written extensively about global financial crises. He recently published a piece about the Evergrande crisis in the journal Democracy, which inspired this interview, and I'll post a link to that article in the show notes. We kick off discussing how Evergrande got buried in such deep debt and what that says about the role of debt in fueling China's massive economic growth over the past decade. He then explains some policy options available to the Chinese government and some of the potential international implications of Evergrande's insolvency. So if you are a regular listener to the show, I suspect you know that there are some issues, some topics that I come into with a bit of knowledge about having been a journalist for so long covering international affairs, global development, the United Nations. Uh, this was not one of those topics. I came into it with a very low information, and I learned a great deal, and I suspect you will too. If you're eager to learn more, I do recommend that article in the journal Democracy. Here is my conversation with Richard Vague. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization Hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Evergrande is a home builder. They build a lot of homes and they have been in business for 25 years from the time that, uh, the ability of uh, the Chinese, China's population to buy homes first came about. So they are one of the giants in the home building business in China. Uh, as companies that begin to kind of get resistance in their primary line of business often do, they've diversified, including electric vehicles. So how did Evergrande get into such deep
0: financial trouble?
1: Well, Evergrande has increasingly relied on debt to accomplish its ends. And anytime you get too leveraged, your margin of error gets narrower and narrower. They're at a point where their debt debt and other liabilities are in the neighborhood of the equivalent of $300 billion. So they're one of the most indebted firms in the world, certainly one of the most indebted uh, home builders in the world. Uh, their debt to equity ratio is almost 500%. So they got a lot of debt.
0: Uh, and. As you write in in your piece in Democracy, Evergrande is indicative, though perhaps to an extreme, of a broader trend in China in which incurring huge debt has led to massive economic growth. Can you briefly explain the relationship between debt and growth and how that has manifested itself more broadly in China?
1: I can. Uh, And when we talk about debt in this context, we're talking about non-central government debt. Uh, we call it private sector debt that's a bit of a misnomer when you talk about China of course but you know be the equivalent of uh, the house builder debt in the United States that led up to our 08 crisis. so debt is a paradoxical phenomenon. it takes debt to grow. economies can't grow without debt. debt to build homes, debt for individuals to buy cars, debt for a company to build a new manufacturing plant. So you, you pretty much always see the growth in debt uh, uh, leading economic growth. The issue becomes when debt grows too fast, because what that does is create overcapacity. You're suddenly at a point where you have too many office buildings or too many homes uh, for uh, the market that you're trying to serve. You don't have enough buyers you don't have enough renters. Uh, So China has grown uh, significantly in debt. And in 08, which is kind of a watershed moment, because that was when the last crisis occurred, uh, China's debt was 112% of its GDP. It's now double that, 224% of GDP. That's a lot of builders, home builders, and a lot of other folks building a lot of stuff. And as it turns out, It's really more stuff than they need. They have enough uh, empty housing right now to house 90 million people. That's more housing than most countries have, period. Uh, So uh, debt has led to the point where there are issues. And who is holding this, this Evergrande
0: debt right now?
1: Well, a lot of it is the commercial banks in China. A lot of it is bonds that have been issued in China. A lot of it is uh, held by vendors. Uh, you know, there are also liabilities that companies have to its customers, its uh, home builders. I mean, home buyers. And they've also sold what are called wealth certificates. These are unsecured pieces of paper with high interest rates, 7.5% uh, typically. That individuals hold. So they have a lot of debt. I would I would note that some of that debt is held internationally, but we estimate the vast majority of that is held within China
0: and it seems to me at least that one of the big political implications of this evergrand debt crisis for the government of China is is precisely what you described as individuals
1: in China you know thousands and thousands of them um holding this debt yeah I, I, there's reason for concern you know there we estimate it's some 60,000 individuals that own uh, what would amount to about 6 billion dollars worth of these wealth certificate that very easily could be worth far less than $6 billion, maybe as little as zero, because they are an unsecured creditor. And you know, there's a bigger issue relative to homes, because in the case of Evergrande and other builders, people actually buy these homes before they're built and make a rather large down payment or even a payment in full for the home a year or two or three before it's built. So a lot of folks have made payment to uh, Evergrande for homes that may, in fact, never be built. So you've got two big uh, potential areas uh, for protest and crisis, and the China's government has to be concerned about that. And I think that's one of the biggest questions in how Evergrande plays out is how how much or little China's government will intervene in those particular situations. We, we know at this point in time that China's government's going to be tough relative to the shareholders for, uh, of Evergrande stock, which are presumably sophisticated institutions uh, in most cases, uh, the, the large bondholders, which are again institutions. But it's the question of what the average uh, citizen of China is going to experience here.
0: So can you walk us through like what you see as some of the likely or potential options for government uh, response at this moment?
1: Well, China has almost unlimited capacity to deal with this. That's what a country has that has monetary so- sovereignty, you know, issues its own current current issues debt in its own currency, etc. The US like- has they could bail Evergrande out tomorrow if they wanted to. Precisely, they could ever uh, bail Evergrande out and many others besides Evergrande. The question really is what what kind of lessons they want to teach here. They don't want these companies to continue to get into this increasingly overleveraged posture. So they're sending a message. So the real question is really who they're going to send it to and how strong that message is going to be. Uh, as I just discussed, they can. Let the stockholders and large bondholders take their losses. Uh, what will they do with suppliers? What will they do with these individuals? They're making noise at the moment. They're saying to folks at local government levels, prepare for a possible storm. Uh, so they're implying that something may be had bad may be happening to all these folks. I really do expect that they will intervene at least somewhat on behalf of some of these Uh, uh, less uh, smaller uh, investors and uh, wealth certificate holders, but it remains to be seen. It's the big question. So like the way in
0: which Xi Jinping um, emerges from this still broadly popular is by supporting the individuals who, who hold this debt and kind of cracking down hard on the leadership of the company is what you're saying.
1: That's a, that's a reasonable expectation, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not clear that, that he's even going to help the little guy, but that, that would be a reasonable expectation.
0: So what so far have you seen already in terms of the international implications of this, you know, the, the fact that a large real estate company in China is so hugely in debt? What have we seen thus far?
1: Well, we've seen a fairly benign reaction in international uh, equity markets and debt markets to this. Uh, we've been watching that carefully. The U.S. market uh, more or less didn't react to the first deadline miss, which was last Thursday. There was another one, I believe, today. So, uh, so far, I think the international market's expectations is that, you uh, the Chinese government will contain this to Evergrand and perhaps a few others, but not let it spill across China's economy broadly. I think that's reasonable, but I would also tell you China has long been fairly insular. So there hasn't been a lot of international participation in this in Evergrand stock or bonds or the stock and bonds of, of comparable companies just because China has limited that somewhat. And that what that means is there's less chance of significant so-called contagion. Uh, it, it's a lot less than was true in the United States in 2008, where German banks, for example, had massive investments in the mortgage bonds of, of the United States. That's interesting
0: because, you know, China, at least for much of Europe, I guess, with the exception of of Germany, which sells a lot of cars in China, um, is not like a huge market for export.
1: I think that's right. You know, that's the uh, another big piece of the contagion equation is how dependent are uh, other countries, businesses on exports to China. And it's a relatively small dependence when it comes to the United States and Western Europe, with the exception, as you pointed out, of Germany, which has a rather significant amount of exports going to China. It's also different in the immediate region around China. Uh, Smaller countries that are uh, such as Vietnam, South Korea, Australia uh, do have significant exports to China and have to be wary of a slowdown. Mm. So so that could be perhaps the most immediate international effect is some
0: sort of slowdown regionally.
1: Yeah, I think we're already seeing that, you know, COVID complicated the picture and slowed things significantly globally, but how much of that is a structural slowdown is what's unclear. But, you know, if China can't keep building a lot of houses and office buildings, their own GDP growth is naturally going to decline. It's a couple of decades ago, it was 10%. More recent decade, it was about 7.7%. There's a lot of commentators that are looking at a China that now will grow uh, far less than the 6 to 7% it's been growing. Maybe that a lot of folks are calling for 4% growth. If that's true, or if a number below that is true, uh, folks in Asia, including Australia, will feel that, and it will be a slowdown in their own GDP growth. So that you know, potentially this could have some interesting and important geopolitical uh,
0: implications as well if if this kind of crisis is indicative of you know a broader debt crisis among other uh, companies in China that results in the issuance of of less debt, uh, which in turn causes GDP growth to slow. Uh, you know, th- this is like where the big
1: implications perhaps lie. Yeah, in my own mind, I compare it uh, to what happened in Japan in the '90s. And it, you know, it may not be that dramatic, but Japan had been the juggernaut in the 1980s and uh, began to wrestle wrestle with their over lending uh, situation starting in kind of 1991, and really came to grips with it in 1998. And since 1998, Japan's uh, had become so overbuilt and so overindebted that it really began a more moderating debt approach. And its GDP growth in nominal terms has been close to zero in the 20 plus years since then. Now, that may not be exactly what happens in China, uh, but something like that in my mind is not improbable at all. Uh, quite a bit of a a softening in their in their longer term uh, growth. And that's really a different image of China than we've held. You know, China has been recently the juggernaut. It's fueled global GDP growth. There's been talk about China overtaking the U.S. economy in size and the like. And I think that that's all that uh, talk could change somewhat.
0: Um, in the coming weeks or months, are there any sort of indicators or events or, or really inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you uh, whether or not that long term prognosis that you just articulated uh, a significant slowdown in china's uh, GDP growth uh, will occur?
1: Well, you know, I think there'll be two things to watch. One is we it's reasonable to expect that other developers and builders beyond Evergrande have problems and have have what are in effect bankruptcies or or uh, failures or, or, you know, they get broken up or what have you. So I think there's going to be a number of those countries to uh, companies. It's reasonable to expect things will happen to. But if China keeps it contained to just that, that would really be, you know, a comforting sign Uh, to the global economy. So seeing how much or little of that occurs over the next six or 12 months is a big part of it. The other part of it is simply looking at the quarterly GDP numbers that China posts. And do we continue to see softer and softer numbers? We're not going to know that next quarter. We're not going to know that two quarters from now. But over the next eight, 12, 16 quarters, I think the story is going to become fairly clear. And lastly, there has been some talk question about whether um,
0: China is fully accurate in their reporting of uh, those GDP numbers. Do you have confidence in in those numbers that they're accurate?
1: Well, I do uh, try to get as many different China numbers as possible from as many different sources, because I think there's a a temptation by any government, not just China's, to try to make their numbers look favorable We've seen evidence of, you know, blatant misreporting from some of the regions of China. So I'd, I'd always take China's numbers with a bit of a grain of salt. I mean, you see folks who use satellite photos or, you know, electric lights at night to develop proxies of China's GDP growth to see how far of an extreme it has gone to. But every, every government wrestles with that. Uh, numbers are tricky things. But I do think uh, it's appropriate to have a dose of skepticism relative to China's numbers. Uh, Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. It's a privilege to be with you.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Richard Vague. You know, this episode came about just because... I knew that I needed to know about Evergrande, and I suspect that uh, you in the audience as well would appreciate learning more uh, about this crisis. So, it sort of stemmed uh, from my own lack of knowledge, but now I'm now I'm versed. Thank you. I will right, we'll see you later. Bye.